This is Web Suasion Conversation, Episode 3. Welcome to the show. I am Ryan Williams, president and founder of the Web Suasion Group, and we are coming to you from our Capoca Studios here at Pinewood Atlanta Studios in Fayetteville, Georgia. Today on the show, we've got Atlanta-based attorney Frank G. Goldman. Very excited to talk to him. And I want to say thank you to everyone who reached out to us about the podcast in the last two weeks. This is week three for us, and the response has been way bigger than we could have anticipated, especially for a little business podcast kind of popping up out of nowhere uh, with all the competition out there in the podcasting world. So we really appreciate it. Please do get in touch with us, though, and let us know what you think. Give us any suggestions that you have. We're still new and getting our sea legs here. So if there are topics that you would like us to cover that we haven't gotten into yet, please let us know and we'll do our best to get around to that. Since we are on a legal theme with our episode today, I want to talk real quick about privacy policies on your website. And we'll get a little also into security and compliance. If you have a website for your business, you need to absolutely make sure that you have a privacy policy in place. If you're doing business with anyone in California, you need to make sure that you're covered under the California Consumer Privacy Act. And if you're doing business with anyone overseas or collecting information with anyone overseas, you need to make sure that you're covered by Europe's General Data and Protection Regulation. Now, there are free generators for these privacy policies online, but I really recommend that you have a business attorney like Frank take a look at it, make sure that you're completely covered. So once you have that privacy policy approved and ready to go, it's not terribly complicated to get it on your website. Usually you'll just put it on a page and link to it in your footer so it's accessible to everyone from every page and you're good to go. But one thing that every business also needs is an SSL certificate. They need to have their site protected and secure. There are a lot of reasons to have an SSL certificate on your website. One of those is the prevalence of public Wi-Fi. So anyone, including yourself, when you're out using public Wi-Fi, when you go to a website that is not SSL protected, that means it has the HTTPS, not just HTTP, you are vulnerable to exploits, one of which is called the the man-in-the-middle attack. And that means that anything that you enter, including passwords or form information, that's going to be potentially vulnerable to someone in the middle sitting on that network, seeing what you're putting in. So if you have an SSL certificate, you're protected from that. The data being transmitted from your browser and the server is being encrypted, so no one can see that. So this is becoming so important that Google is starting to highlight it in Chrome. When you go to a website that is not secure, you'll see at the top, it has a badge that says not secure. It's warning you. And they're going to get more and more aggressive about highlighting that in the future. And in fact, many people are saying that having an SSL certificate actually affects your search results. And I have a feeling that will be more and more true in the future as well. So if you have an SSL certificate on your website and your competition doesn't, you're possibly going to rank higher than them. So by having that HTTPS protection on your site, you're protecting your customers, you look more professional, and you're potentially getting better search rankings. Also, if you're doing any kind of e-commerce through your website, or you're a medical practice that needs to be HIPAA compliant, it's absolutely necessary that you have HTTPS to be compliant. 
SSL certificates are not terribly expensive these days. You pay for them once a year, much like your domain names. And depending on the level of protection you need, they're usually under $100. Any reputable web developer or hosting company can configure those for you. But if you ever need our help, please let us know. So this week, your homework is very simple. Just go to your website and look and see, do you have an updated privacy policy? And is your site protected by HTTPS? Should take it 30 seconds to do that. So before we move on to Frank, I want to tell you about our Visitor Sleuth platform powered by Lead Forensics. It is a tool for finding out what companies are coming to your website and what their contact information is. It streamlines your sales process. It gets the insights your sales team needs and generates quick leads and conversions with confidence. So let's say that you're sending out 3,000 business mailers and you want to know when any of those businesses come to your website. You upload those business names to this platform. It keeps a lookout for them. When one of them comes to your site, it sends you an email report. You pop on, you can see exactly where they're going on your website, how long they're spending on each page, and it will give you the contact information for who is actually on your site. That is pretty powerful. We've got a free trial going on now, so come to websuasion.com forward slash leads. That's W-E-B-S-U-A-S-I-O-N.com forward slash L-E-A-D-S. So now we're going to talk to Frank G. Goldman, an attorney in Atlanta who provides strategic legal guidance to businesses, their owners, executives, officers, and managers in a wide variety of legal disciplines. Frank is going to talk to us about the legal pitfalls that businesses often fall into, including topics on the legal needs of new businesses, transactional law, operating agreements, hiring, when you need a contract, arbitration versus mediation, just to name a few. So here is Frank G. Goldman. Hey, Frank. Thanks for being on the show. I'm enjoying it. Thank you. You have a pretty deep history with law. You've been doing it, what, 25 years now? Coming up on 25, it's amazing how quickly it's gone. Well, at first, I think we have to start off with your experience before law, which was... (laughs) That was always a good one I was interviewing. Yeah, so you were a missile launch officer? Yeah. Back during the Cold War, I was stationed at F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I was a missile launch officer on the Minuteman III nuclear missile. So I did that for about four years. Wow. And then after I won the Cold War, uh, (laughs) went ahead and uh, went to law school. Wow. So coming from the stress of nuclear technology to yeah, <laughs> and, you law know, was probably a pretty fairly it, easy it, transition. It, well, what it did is that in times of stress, you learn not to panic when you're in the Air Force right? because of that particular, obviously, pretty powerful weapon system. So now I've applied those lessons in the courtroom and with my clients. It says when things are looking stressful, you have to take a step back, take a deep breath, figure out your game plan, yeah, move yeah. forward. What percentage would you say of what you do now is litigation-based instead of contract-based? You know, it used to be probably 80%, 90% was litigation. Wow. But now I have become general counsel to most of my clients. So it's probably a 50-50 mix. Okay. Um, 
And that's part of where I've tried to take the firm a little more right. to the transactional side. It's a lot more fun to deal with people when they're in a good mood trying to move their businesses forward than <laughs> right. when they're in a bad mood yeah. and having to deal with litigation. And trying to deal with all the things they didn't do right. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about your previous experience with the other law firms when sure. you were working more. Was it more corporate oriented or what? Uh, it was more commercial litigation oriented okay. for maybe larger companies. So what happened with me is that I spent the first three years of my career in D.C. cutting my teeth at the U.S. Department of Treasury, chasing out bank directors who had wow. stolen their depositors' money. And then okay, okay. for personal reasons, I ended up in Atlanta in the late 90s and went to a large law firm and sort of went from one large firm to another, ending my time at a firm called Womble Carlisle, which is now Womble Bond Dickinson here in Atlanta. Okay, Excellent firm, excellent people. But what happened is that my client base turned out to be closely held, family-run businesses. And a large law firm is, well, they'll service those clients and oftentimes uh, do it very well. Right. Uh, they want Fortune 1000 companies. And the price points were getting higher and higher and higher. And right. I just decided, look, I can take my client base, move it to a less expensive platform, quite frankly, have more independence for how I want to practice law and in terms of my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that since 2006. So when you say small business, is that under 500 employees? Is that like you know, solo entrepreneurs? Or is uh, it it's more structure than it is size. So for example, a Coca-Cola or a Home Depot is probably not hiring a really small firm regularly at least to do work for them. Whereas, right. you know, I represent a lot of restaurateurs, some physician practice groups that are owned by a family or a set of partners. Right. And so I'm able to help them because I'm also a business owner at my own law firm. So I'm able to see things that they might be challenged with. And in some cases, it's by going to court and helping them there or trying to put together an agreement or something along those lines. A big right. company is less likely to hire me than, say, well, your company, or let me try to give an example of a business I've represented here in the last few months. I represent an Amco franchise, okay. franchisor, or franchisee, okay. I should say. And we've been working together to try to solve the issues that have arisen in his business. You talked about your clients were getting more small business oriented. So I guess that's one of the things that made you take the leap into doing your own practice. Correct. Was there, was there anything else that, that kind of, well, how, how did you know it was time to do it? It was time for me to move on. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had taken on a lot of responsibilities. I had great rapport with a lot of my colleagues and partners at the last of the law firms that I departed. But it was also clear that uh, for me to grow professionally and for me to satisfy my own business interests, it was time to, to do something so else. So what, what were the challenges that you found immediately upon becoming a business owner now? Like you've had all this litigation right. experience, you've had right. all this contract law experience, but you're doing it for the first time yourself. Uh, well, you know, sort of naturally when you're an attorney, you're always risk adverse. Yeah. And being a business owner and entrepreneur, you have to be willing to take on more risk. So I could see every potential problem, flaw, risk in any plan that I had come before me and when I was only an attorney at a large law firm, oh, here's a risk, here's a risk, here's a risk. But when you have your own law firm, you're like, well, I need to grow my business. How am right. I going to do that? How am I going to retain clients? I may have to take this risk or pay for this thing or that thing, this type of promotion. So, right. for example, I used to not do a lot of networking. Now, so much of my 
practice is based on the people that I meet. People don't usually hire an attorney based on just going to a website. So for me, it's where do I make the most persuasive case for somebody to retain me? And that's typically in a one-on-one situation or in a networking group or something along those lines. I'd be a lot more outgoing. What kind of networking groups are you involved in that you found... uh the, most beneficial. The one that has worked out the best for me over the last dozen years or so is the Atlanta Business Alliance. I'm okay. actually the incoming president for the Atlanta Business Alliance starting, well, I guess two days ago. Nice. Um, that group has yielded so much, uh, both professionally and personally. Uh, we have been meeting pretty much every week. It turns out to be about 40 times a year since I joined it in 2007. It's been going for 25 years or so. What, is it like a closed referral network? It's or? a closed referral network. Okay. You know, we do have a couple slots open in the Atlanta Business Alliance. Specifically, we're looking for a general contractor okay. on the construction side. And uh, our spot just opened up for on the telecom side. Okay. So if you uh, sell telecom, you might want to give me a buzz. How big of a um, group is that? We have 22 members right now. We try to give everybody a chance twice a year to present. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're sticklers about attendance, but this is a lot more laid back. Like I said, I've been a member of that group since 2006 or early 2007, and it's yielded hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of revenue for me. So that's one. You and I met through the Atlanta Medical Consulting Group, which mm-hmm. is a similar organization dedicated to the medical field. That's an excellent group. And sometimes it takes time through those groups. I mean, if you walk into one of those networking groups thinking that leads are coming your way within two visits, right? it doesn't work that way. You have to earn it. So Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's no, correct. No one owes you anything. In correct. Now, you would hope that people would remember you and give you the opportunity. Sure. And that's typically what happens, uh, especially if you are an active member who brings good ideas and gives good presentations. Uh, The one thing I would definitely suggest to anybody in those networking groups is have a good presentation. Yeah. And a hint to anybody and everybody in any field doing anything, a PowerPoint should not be read off the PowerPoint (laughs) screen. Please don't read me your PowerPoint. That's my pet peeve. Yeah. Pet peeve of the week. Uh, I have also been involved in, since I live in Decatur, my practice is in Decatur, I've been involved in the Decatur Business Association. Okay. That's sort of their chamber of commerce. Yeah. So, and then I've dabbled with the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce that I quite honestly have mixed feelings about. Right, right. I think they're more dedicated towards the larger uh, industries in, in town. And yeah. it, it makes sense. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where they get most so. of their sponsorship from. Yes, yeah. that's right. They get a lot yeah. of money from the Home Depots and the Deltas, et cetera. Do you make a distinction between, say, like the solo entrepreneur who's launching and someone who's trying to do a startup? Because I think you said yes. you do some stuff. So yes. can you talk a little bit about the difference between the two? Uh, yeah. One's going after investor capital, I imagine. The other right. is trying to just build a business organically. Yeah. The two sides of that coin are very different. If somebody's trying to do a startup just as their own business, there's a lot of things that people People just don't know how to do. Right. Right. How do I get my business license? How do I register with the state? How do I get my tax ID set up? All those nuts and bolts things I'll help or my team will help set that up. Uh, and we do that quite honestly at a very inexpensive cost point. And it's so that they'll remember us when they need more sophisticated work. Right. That being said, I'm as much psychiatrist or psychologist at times as I am attorney. Right. The challenges that a new business owner will face, they may not have ever faced before, and they may have lots of questions about lots of different things. Yeah, and they just kind of need a guide. And they'll need somebody to bounce something off. Yeah. 
If it's a group of people or uh, it's looking for venture capital or for something along those lines of initial investment from others, that's a lot more work. It's a lot more sophistication. It's a lot more challenging for everybody involved. Recently, I helped one of my clients who's expanding his business by helping do a bridge loan for them. So that's Mm -hmm. something that we help out with as well. Okay, and, so you get into the capital. And, yeah, that's where the fun has come over the last year or two in the okay. terms of switching from just being a uh, litigator into having a sort of a broader practice with okay. a uh, transactional bent as well. So you've developed some relationships with people that do factoring or any, any of that Correct. kind of stuff. Okay. Correct. And, you know, the other thing is that if I don't personally know how to do something, I try to keep from getting over my skis too far. Right. But the odds are I've probably met somebody who does it. Yeah, especially through the networking. Oh, I mean, that's between the, such a you know, the Atlanta. I'm also a member of the Atlanta Bar Association. Okay. You know, all the bars, and I, and the fortunate part is that I have maintained good relationships with large law firm attorneys with whom I have had great relationships over the years. Who, you know, if you need to throw three or four or five attorneys at a project, right? If your budget can handle it, yeah, you've got it, you and know. you have a specific. For example, you want to register your securities because you want to do an IPO. I can right. I can help you find that person. I'm I'm not going to do the nuts and bolts work, but I can help you find that person too. What are some of the common things that you find that starting out businesses? What what are some of the legal mistakes that they make? They don't have in place an operating agreement that isn't so much uh, a focus of what they're doing on that particular day, but it should be the focus of what happens when one of us wants to leave the business. Right. No exit plan. No No exit plan. And uh, I really encourage anybody who comes to me who might have, you know, two buddies who have been buddies for years and they want to start a business and they want to do it Uh 50-50. Like, okay, what happens if one of you gets hurt, hit by a bus? What happens if one of you just decides I've had enough? Yep. What happens if all of a sudden – Things that were easy to resolve as friends are not easy to resolve as co-business owners. Right. Now, we can put an operating agreement together. I can help you find key person mm-hmm. insurance. We can work on having in the operating agreement a provision that will essentially make it a formula for you to determine how somebody's going to get bought out, okay. that kind of thing. And that's one of the more common mistakes. Another mistake that I see pretty frequently is if you have employees who are critical to the operation of your business, you either don't have an agreement in place to keep them from going and starting another business down the street that competes with your business, right. or on the flip side, you're not treating the employee properly pursuant to the labor and employment laws, either okay. state or federal. So you get into the government regulations to OSHA. Oh, yeah. One of the bigger mistakes these days is that employers are trying to categorize people as independent contractors who are probably closer to employees. And the Georgia Department of Labor has had a focus on that in the last few years. Right. You know, there's a test. You have to pass the test. The more you control somebody's work environment, the more likely they are to be considered an employee. Right, right. So that's one of the things that you can pretty easily avoid if you just have a half-hour conversation with your counsel. What about contracts with uh, clients? Yeah, uh, we do quite a few of those. Here's where I think having a more practical attorney works for you because you can nitpick a contract and try to make it the perfect ironclad ironclad document. Ultimately, these things eventually come down to trust when it's, say, between a business and its vendors. Right. You know, at some point, you're going to have to trust that the other side is going to act in good faith. Is it always necessary to have a contract in those cases? Uh, Not always. I mean, if you have, I mean, if it's a one-off situation, probably don't need a contract. Or if it's somebody you've dealt with years and years and years and years as a vendor. 
Yeah, probably not. The bigger the amount in question, the more likely it is you're going to need a contract. Every situation is a little different. I try to to flesh out what exactly is being contemplated yeah. before we start putting pen to paper. That being said, they're useful instruments. One of the things now is that it's very popular within a lot of contracts between and among businesses are arbitration provisions, for example. And there are pluses and minuses to those. And uh, I like to discuss with my clients whether they really need them or not, what the costs are going to be as opposed to not having those in there. Right. There are also other provisions that you like to have in contracts that seem to be boilerplate, but they're there for a purpose. We're heavily involved in tech, obviously, since sure. we're programming. And one of the things we run into a lot are terms of service, privacy agreements, and things like that. Is that something that you can help people mm-hmm. with? Very, most definitely. And then how about like intellectual property? That's something that I've only met a couple of lawyers who deal exclusively in IP. And like I have a, a couple of sources on the IP side. Uh, I don't delve too heavily into it. I've done some copyright work and some trademark work. Okay. But when you're talking about uh, heavy licensing work or patent work. Right. So what happens, my sister's a patent attorney. So oh, okay. she's here in town in the okay. Atlanta area. So I work with her some. I also have a couple of other really trusted uh, attorneys who are in the IP world who do trademark and IP licensing agreements. So I have resources at my disposal that I can assist a client who might have an IP issue that's above my pay grade. Specific to the medical field, is there anything that a practice, I mean, obviously they have a lot of patient and HIPAA compliance issues. Well, HIPAA is number one. I've helped out physician practice groups with their employment practices sometimes on the staff level, sometimes on the physician level. A lot of times a uh, practice will end up hiring a physician on a part-time basis or on a contract basis. So we help them with that. And I've also helped out on the medical regulatory side on occasion. There's a statute called the Stark Statute where you have to be a little bit careful about how you divvy up your business interests in terms of referrals. If you own, say, a radiology practice and you also own an x-ray or or CAT scan facility. You have to be careful about how you do the referrals back and forth. Yeah, because you can end up, especially if you are being compensated by the Medicare Medicaid system, you can walk yourself into a regulatory nightmare. If it looks like you are doing things that will raise the revenues without really practicing medicine in the proper way. And those can even rise to the level of a criminal indictment. I've had that happen with a client about 10 years ago, and that was a nightmare for all involved. Eventually, it turned out okay, but you still want to be careful in terms of those type of situations. So you'll do some defense litigation? And as- yes, uh, within reason. Yeah. Okay. Again, one of those things, it's become over the last, certainly since I started practicing, everything is more and more specialized. Mm-hmm. And I sort of buck that trend by being a general counsel type for my clients. But there is a point at which if you dig too deep, Right into the weeds, you you probably want some subject matter expertise. Right, but you get to be the point man. I'd be the point person who acts as the go between between well, oftentimes between opposing counsel and my clients, obviously, but uh, also in trying to find people who can assist the client because of all the connections I've made and the experiences I've had over the last geez twenty years here in Atlanta, twenty plus years now. What are some of the pitfalls that you fell into that, you know, even though you're an experienced business attorney, or can you speak to anything that you would have done differently? Uh, <laughs> you probably, almost assuredly. I'm sure uh, we all do. You know? Yeah, we all do. Uh, you know, I've been trying to grow the practice organically, uh, and that's worked out well. One of the things that probably would benefit me is to have a couple more people on staff, because for me, a bigger platform would probably yield larger clients. 
So delegation. A little more issue. delegation. <laughs> a problem for me too. Right. Uh, and I've ha- been blessed to have some really great staff people over the years, but I'm like the AAA franchise, right? Uh, they'll go up to the major leagues after they've spent a couple of years with me where yeah, yeah. I just can't afford to pay them the salaries that you can receive at a gigantic law firm, for example. Right. Bless them. I'm still in contact with most of them. They're all doing very well. But if I had a bigger platform, probably could afford a little more staff and do a little more to market to a broader audience. And then in terms of mistakes I've made, you know, I've been pretty fortunate. I've never really had any disasters occur where I felt the business was in jeopardy. That being said, you know, you always have your problem clients, your problem children. You're like, oh, God. Well, you, you definitely learn over time who your best clients are. And you also most... learn how to fire clients. Yeah. I have fired clients. It's yeah. never pleasant, but if you can't help them, you right. can't help them. Uh, and I've made one or two hiring decisions that, in retrospect, I probably would have said, eh, maybe yeah. not. That being said, it's not been so bad that I felt it was jeopardizing the business. But hire slow, fire fast. Right. Right. I probably held on to some people a little too long. Yeah. But yeah, you know, keep giving them a chance. And yeah, it's gonna work out. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> what are you looking forward to in the in this year and the coming years for your practice? How are you looking to expand? A uh, couple things. Number one is I am a registered mediator in the state of Georgia, and I'd really love to expand that part of my practice. So is that part of arbitration or? So there are like- two different types of what are called alternative dispute resolution mechanisms. Uh, arbitration is when you hire a third party essentially to function as the judge and jury for a dispute. So if our two businesses are in a dispute, instead of going to court, you go to arbitration and the arbitrator will hear all the evidence, make a decision, and then that decision would be enforceable in any court. And that's final. That's final. Yeah. In fact, it this is one of the things I tell my clients is that if you're going to go down the arbitration path, be aware that appealing an adverse arbitration decision is extremely difficult. Right. Whereas if you go to court and you lose, there is a court of appeals here in Georgia and, of course, in, in U.S. Court of Appeals, where you can appeal and maybe you have some luck in doing that appeal. Arbitration, because of the way the law set up, that's very difficult. Why would anyone ever choose to do that? Then? Well, is it a cost thing? It's a cost thing and a time thing. Let's start with time. It's almost certainly going to be quicker. Cost, 10 years ago, I said it would be less expensive. Now I am actually advising a lot of my clients to stay away from arbitration provisions because you have to pay. In addition to paying your attorney to do the dispute, you are also going to pay the arbitrator and you're going to pay whatever firm is doing the management of the arbitration. So I honestly think it's more expensive for most closely held businesses. If you're a gigantic public corporation and you throw an arbitration provision into your contract, you're doing it for a reason. And the reason is because you have an advantage in terms of scale. You can afford an arbitration provision. Whereas if you're a closely held business, I advise them typically not to do it. So when you're talking about mediation. That's different. So mediation, let's say you're in a dispute with another business and it's in court. Oftentimes, courts will say, you need to find somebody outside of the courthouse to help you try to resolve that dispute. Please go mediate the case. Is that because of the complexity of it? or is It could that... be for any number of reasons. Oftentimes, court dockets are so full, the courts, especially on the civil side, want to say, can you guys go out and please try to reach a settlement? Work this out amongst yourselves. Yeah. And as a mediator, my training is to bring those parties into a room and say, look, what is it that you are upset about? How is it that we can try to solve this problem? 
and essentially do that for both sides and then try to bring them together to resolve the case. 99% of business cases is ultimately come down to one thing, money. Yeah. So, so there's not, I was going to ask you, because you mentioned earlier about uh, kind of being a, a psychiatrist almost, uh, how much of the mediation process is like considerable. feelings and- Considerable. You know, the yeah. first part is get your story out there. Let's hear your story. Okay. Sometimes a good story doesn't make for a good legal case. Right. Sometimes it does, but oftentimes it doesn't. The I'm, law and is a mysterious thing to most people on a regular basis. You may think that you have been deprived of some right or jerked around. It's a moral issue. It's a moral issue, a, a, a yeah. legal up, issue. Yeah, but people want to have their stories heard. Yeah. So that's part of it. And then part of it is to tell the party or to inform the party, well, this is what the law is. Here's what your challenges are. You know, there is a premium to buying your peace. Wouldn't it be better, say, let's say you, had a, you were able to resolve something in early 2019, wouldn't it be better to spend the time, energy, and money that you're spending on this dispute growing your business or right. doing something else? And then you leave it to the parties to decide whether or not they want to resolve it. I've had good luck and bad luck as a participant in mediations for my clients. I think there are some great mediators out there. I think there are some lousy ones. So with the mediation, is it just you as the single attorney and the two parties, or do they have their own attorneys They as typically well? have their own attorneys. Okay. Uh, so, And that's helpful yeah. because the attorneys can benefit you in terms of doing your mediation in the sense that if they're good attorneys, they're telling their clients both yeah. the good things about their case and the bad things about their case. And you need to, yeah, you need to consider this. And, Correct. Yeah. yeah. Here's your risk. Right. Here's the benefit. What do you think? Now, sometimes the the chasm is too. I was in a mediation on behalf of a client a couple of months ago, and the you know they were at X and we were at Y, and X and Y was pretty far off. Right. So it didn't settle. But then you can still, even after the mediation, go back and discuss settlement with the opposing party, and at least it's giving you some framework to work around. So if that mediation doesn't work out at that point, they do go back to the court system usually. And- Correct. Okay. That's right. And it just proceeds along uh, the do- on the docket, and you get to trial when you get to trial. And the counties in the Atlanta area vary considerably. Gwinnett's pretty fast. Fulton, who knows? Right. Um, I don't I, – quite honestly, we're here in Fayette County, I think. I mm-hmm. don't know. Probably pretty quick. Some of the suburban counties are a little quicker. That being said, again, on a business dispute, it's typically about money. And then the question is, do you really want 12 strangers deciding your fate in a jury box? Right. Sometimes you do. I did a trial, I guess, in late 2017, and we were very successful with a jury. That being said, it could have gone the other way. You're talking about county to county. What about out of state? When you're working with business operators who are doing a lot of business out of state, mm-hmm. is there what kind of concerns do they have from like a contract well, standpoint? Or a lot of times, for example, if you are a company in North Carolina and you're doing business in Georgia, typically you have to register in the state of Georgia, and vice versa. If you are a Georgia company and you're doing business of any significance in another state, you probably have to register to do business in that state. We can help you with that. If you end up in a dispute, I have a client who is here in Georgia. They're in a dispute with a uh, company in Texas. We're about to have a race to the courthouse, I think, (laughs) in that particular matter. And so you have to determine whether it's proper to bring the action in Texas or proper to bring the action in Georgia. I'm not admitted in the state of Texas, but I have friends who are. I typically get brought in as what's called, it's a technical term, pro hoc vice. Mm-hmm. Where I'll appear specially in the state of Texas or in another, you know, in that particular example, 
What about with outsourcing to other countries? Is there anything, I mean, that's probably that maybe getting outside of your there warehouse, are, but... Uh, uh, there are specialists in that. Okay. You know, it's something that's more and more common. Right. You can have your own feelings about it from a business standpoint as to whether it's good for your business, bad for your business. Obviously, if you're going to go through that process, you think it's good for your business. Typically, if you have a workforce here that you're replacing, you have to deal with those issues. Mm-hmm. There are specialists here in the States, and then if you're outsourcing to China or outsourcing to India, you're typically not actually the employer in those circumstances. You're contracting with a staffing company Mm -hmm. in India or China or Vietnam or wherever it might be that let them handle that part, and you're just making a payment on a regular basis. When those things go bad, is there really anything that you can do? From a legal standpoint, us being in the U.S., well, you can with- still always. I mean, in the original contract, you could always try to put a provision in that says you're going to bring the action here in the United States. Whether it's collectible or not, I don't know. Right. There are business arbitration mechanisms in place where you can arbitrate in a business before an international arbitration association that's dedicated to business disputes. So you can put that in the contract. Again, it's about planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd rather know what's going to happen in the event of something bad happening before the bad thing happens than trying to pick up the pieces and figure out, well, how do I deal with this now that it's gone awry? Frank, thank you so much for sure. being on My the pleasure. show. Sure, my pleasure. It's great. My pleasure. Good. Thank you so much for listening to WebSuasion Conversation. Please subscribe to us on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you could, go and give us a review. That really helps us to get the word out. Next week on the show, we have Diane B. Morris. Diane is a fashion stylist, personal shopper, author, and dietitian who has a strong sense of commitment to help her clients create their authentic image statement. If you'd like to see show notes for the episode today, as well as video excerpts and leave us feedback, please come to websuasion.com forward slash three. That's W-E-B-S-U-A-S-I-O-N dot C-O-M forward slash the number three. And I wish you a productive business week.